0: I have like Hollywood horror stories I could tell you like all night. Like I've threatened to blow up producers, cars I've threatened, you know, it's, it's been rough. It's, I've had, you know, every job I've ever worked on, I've had to do work for free. You just get fucked. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do a little bit of the fucking back.
1: If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to Ten Thousand Knows. I've got a special one for you today. Somehow I managed to get City on a Hill creator Chuck McLean to not only sit down with me, but to ask to be on the show. I'm honestly still kind of scratching my head how I got so lucky, but I am psyched, and you should be too. However. I want to take this time up top to tell you to grab your earmuffs or hide your children because along with all the laughs and wisdom you're about to hear, good old Chucky McLean can drop some F-bombs with the best of them. That's what tried and true Boston guys do, and you're a fool if you try to stop them. So instead, what you're about to hear is raw and honest and full of expletives. So... That is the way it should be. Honestly, it's not that bad, but I did have to warn you. In my opinion, it was worth the explicit rating we had to give it. So, a little pause to get those kids to bed, and we're back. Okay, before I tell you more about Chuck, I want to remind you that you can buy some very cool 10,000 nose swag. Swag? I never know what the correct terminology is. I think one of those may mean bad marijuana. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about apparel Cool hats and T-shirts with the 10,000 Nose logo. T-shirts also have our catchphrase, failures, opportunity across the shoulder blades on the back. You can order them at 10,000nose.com. The specific link will be in the show notes. And the proceeds go toward keeping the show going. So thank you. We appreciate it. And we also appreciate iTunes reviews like this one from Aunt Dolly. And Dolly says, great podcast. I really don't like driving alone on long road trips, but last weekend I found myself forced to make a 12 hour drive. I'm addicted to podcasts, haven't turned on the radio in my car in the last five years, and never miss the West Wing Weekly. I heard about 10,000 No's during Matthew's appearance on TWWW, so I downloaded a few episodes for my road trip. Wonderful podcast. Matthew is so down to earth, humble, and grateful. His guests have great advice that each of us can use in our daily lives both at work and at home, highly recommended, five stars. That is awesome. Thank you, Aunt Dolly, whomever you are. As far as I know, you are not my aunt, but I may adopt you after that review. Appreciate it. I appreciate all of you listening. So let's get to Chuck Stat, or he's going to put a car bomb under my hood. You think I'm joking, but just stick around. We actually do have a story involving a car bomb that you'll be lucky enough to hear, and it's not just from a city on a hill script. Okay, here he is. At just 33 years of age, Chuck McLean has worked with some of the biggest talents in Hollywood, Brad Pitt, Anton Fuqua. Currently, he collaborates with major players Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Tom Fontana, Jennifer Todd, and Kevin Bacon with his critically acclaimed Boston cop drama, City on a Hill. What I enjoyed most in sitting down with Chuck is his ability to say it like it is without worrying what others think of him. As I already mentioned, it may warrant an explicit rating, but you'll feel like you're back on the streets of Boston with this self-described shit bum from Quincy, who pulled off what he calls the biggest con of all by hitting it big in Hollywood as a screenwriter. If he can go in less than 15 years from being bloody and chased by cops to creating a major hit for Showtime, maybe you can too. The only difference? Your journey may not end up being quite as funny or dangerous as Chuck's was. Now, while it's not necessary for you to have seen City on a Hill on Showtime in order to benefit from this conversation, if you've yet to watch season one, go check it out. You will not be disappointed. Early 90s Boston, cops, robbers, crooked FBI agents with big mustaches, can't go wrong. Get yourself up to date because season two starts filming in early 2020 and I believe will air next summer. In the meantime, here he is. The man, the myth, the legend, Chuck McClain.
0: You know, all I really wanted to do is that that's I mean, I guess like the term for it is is male male-driven drama it was like that was that was kind of like the the focus that I came out here with when I moved to LA. And um the scripts I'd written were kind of in that area, and uh what I learned was that uh like really no one cares about that. And like, even, like even more so now, like it's, that's it's almost like a non-starter is like a story about a white guy dealing with something. But what I figured out was that if you jammed uh, a heist into the middle of it or a murder or a serial killer, like people would buy that and people would be interested in doing it. I mean, like the, the big lesson I learned, I mean, the, the way it kind of crystallized for me was that I was in grad school and uh, I hated LA when I first moved here. I mean, like I, when I first moved here, I was, t- I just turned 23. I was maybe like two years from being, you know, running from cops down Harvard Ave and like, you know, talking my way out of DUIs with state Troop. Like, I mean, I was like, it was like at least once every six months, like someone was going to put me in the fucking nut house. And like, you know, a year and a half later, I moved to L.A. and it was just a total fucking culture shock. And so the first break that I had at grad school, I didn't want to go home because I knew if I went home, I was like, it was going to be that much harder coming back. And so I stayed out here by myself, and I um, I just read. Like I read for like the two, three weeks I had off, and you know, I was reading at that point, like the stuff everyone starts on is like Updike and Vonnegut and Hemingway and like, you know, all these big name writers. It was like, you know, history books that I was going into. But the thing that stuck with me and the only book that I'd read that I wanted to talk about was uh, Robert B. Parker's first Spencer novel. And it's like, it's called the Godwolf manuscript. And the story is terrible. I mean, it's really about like a Boston private detective trying to get a rare book back from like the, like someone stole out of the Harvard library and it's like, you could care less, but the Spencer character is so fucking amazing. And it like, it stretches, it goes like right to the line of believability which and steps right over, which was like how Stephen Botchko, when I had him in a class, always talked about that's what you want to do for a character in fiction is like, take it right to the line of believability and then step one, step over. And I couldn't like get the Spencer character out of my head. It was, the character was funny and, and tough and like just a fucking mess. And it was just like, the book was such a joy to read. And it was this thing where I, I sort of, you know, when I was first writing scripts, I, I would always like turn in like 180 page scripts and it would be like, it was a script that we trying to be good while hunting, but it would be like three hours long. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I realized it was this thing where I realized like, Oh, to really make a successful story, like you just need to care about the characters. And it's like, the story can be kind of secondary. And it's even if you're using like a basic, Genre element, a basic genre structure. Like, if the character is really good, like no one's really paying attention to that. And that was how I learned how to write structure. Like, was just I was like, all right, I'm gonna create this really great character. and I'm gonna put them in a very easy, like, private detective type story, and just see what happens. And I, like by doing that, I learned how to use structure, my benefit. And I also learned like how to make. Something that would be like considered like a, a male driven or just a straight drama into something that was, you know, a genre piece or, you know, and how I could, you know, and by learning how to do it with like a private detective story, it was like, oh, I can do this with a horror or I can do this with a comedy or I can do this with, the, you know, it was like I, that was the, the thing that turned me. It was like that, it was like two instances in a row of like realizing like, you know, the character was a thing and then realizing like how structure could help me and it just sort of snapped and that was the launch of this, the script that I wrote from that, um, is still like one of like, there's a couple scripts I have that like universally everyone likes. Yeah. And like, that's still one of them.
1: And it Is was that like, the one that you, that Casey yeah, it was, like, was attached to? Or no, something? no. I what wrote, I it?
0: developed, so like Casey'd read that and that's how I got into, to meet Casey. It's actually kind of funny. Like the whole city on a hill story starts with, um. That movie Black Mass Yeah Like That movie had been in development For like 20 years Before it got made And at one point um, John Lesher You know John Do you remember
1: Lesher I, I know But I don't know. I don't know if He's I'd brilliant He's
0: like literally person. The smartest guy in Hollywood But he'd Him I, I'd, I'd had a meeting with him And uh, we kind of hit it off And he'd read that script And he wanted me to do He wanted me to rewrite Black Mass At, at some point Like way before it ever got made and, um, I couldn't really, I wanted to do it. I was at the time I was like 24 and a, a prick. I wanted to do the Boston story my way. So he was backing me but the other producer didn't want, didn't, didn't see eye out eye with me. So we switched into doing this thing with Casey and Casey had read Ronco. And then he was doing at the same time that black mass was developing. He was doing a whitey bulger project with his brother and Matt Damon and they couldn't nail the script down. It was um uh, they they'd hired a big writer to do it, but he they just didn't nail the the Boston of it. Yeah. So Casey kept saying you should hire Chuck. you should hire Chucky, should hire Chuck. and then that project fell through. Um, and that's when Ben was like, oh well, get the kid who wrote the script was our boy Ronco was the name of that script, and he was like, get the kid who wrote Ronco in here, and we'll talk about the show. Like that's how.
1: And what year was that? How long ago was that?
0: It was five years ago.
1: Five years ago. Yeah. But it was,
0: uh, it was a great meeting. I mean, like Ben is like the best, he's the best producer I've ever worked with. He, he just, I mean, the guy, you know, the way it started was, you know, he had me in the meeting and like I'd been waiting for that meeting like my whole life. Actually, like this whole show has probably pissed off a lot of people that I went to school with because I would act like a dick. Like when I was in grad school.
1: Is that USC? Yeah, uh, I went Intel to USC.
0: School? I was in the writing program and like, they were like, good story would be like good example of me being an ass was uh we had this agent I talked to the class one time and he said of the 33 of you in here in 10 years three of you will be professional writers 10 other of you will work in the industry and the rest of you will just be doing something else and I did the Larry Bird thing where I looked around I was like who are the other two gonna be
1: yeah <laughs> and,
0: I, and I just pissed everyone off and I like you know I, I made it look like I was really like nonchalant. I was terrified the whole time. It was just sort of my bullshit that I was like, oh, I'm going to end up getting work I was like, I'm going to go work for Ben Affleck and that'll be it. And then it ended up happening. So I think it's like, there's a few people that are eating shit right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like really, really, I'd been waiting for that meeting my whole life. And he was like, oh, I want to do a show set in the late eighties using or in the early nineties using like the, this research that I had from the town that I couldn't really use. And, uh, I came in just loaded for bear and he really had the the whole framework of the, the Ryan storyline set up. He came in, like the way the meeting went was he was like, I want, we talked about the time period and like how to do it. And like the examples sort of comparisons of, of what we were looking for, but he was like, okay, this scene, um, you know, the truck robbery, like that scene, the way that it happened, like that, there was an article about, it. he's like, that happens in the pilot and then the courtroom scene in episode 10, he was like, that happens in the final episode. And then he was like, go do your worst. And he handed me like the biggest check I'd ever seen at that point in my career and just let me go. And knowing, having known him a little bit and then, you know, his body of work, there were things that I could do in that script that I knew he would get that other people wouldn't get. Yeah. So there was like certain Boston elements of it, like, just certain words that people use that Like they would never, someone would be like, well, what does that mean? Like we got to like certain references of like, and really the sense of humor. Like I knew the dark sense of humor of it he would get. And so being able to write for him, like I turned it in and I mean, we sold my first draft. I mean, I did a little bit of work on it, but really we sold the first draft and it was just, he really was like, "I, I hired you for your voice. Go do like, Go do that. Like, yeah. Don't worry about what I want to want, but with these people, just go do what you think will be the best show. And it was, that's how we, I mean, we, we sold it. It actually drives like a bunch of producers now nuts. Cause they'll come in and say like, oh, what's your process? And I'm like, well, my process is usually like, hand me a big check and leave me alone for six weeks. And then you'll have a script you can shoot. And they'll get nervous thinking like, I'm not going to work hard after that. And I'm right. like, we'll go ask Ben Affleck if he had a problem with it. Like,
1: yeah. I'm like, that's, it was like, you leave well, me you alone. Well, the confidence to be able to do. Yeah. Cause
0: if you're trying to like, is it right? If like you're trying to please anybody else, like, and it's not just the, that idea in your head of like, I got to, like, I want to tell the best story possible. And then like, you know, that sort of attitude filters down. So it's like, you start seeing one and it's like, all right. What's the next best thing that could happen? Like, what's something no one's going to expect here? What's something that could, like, what's a curveball I can throw him? You know, if you're not doing that, like, if it's not that and it's not fun, and then it just becomes work. And it's like, you know, a job's really hard. So it's like, if it's going to yeah. be work, it's like, you might as well go do something easier. And so it's like, that was why, I mean, Ben was just fucking amazing to work for, because it would always be, you know, it'd be, well, what do you think? Like, this is where, and then like, you know, he'd tell you right up front, like if it had to be, you know, you need to like, you know, it would be, well, we need a role. Like we should get a role in here that it'd be like an A-list actor. We'll do it for one season. And then, you know, we move on. And he would tell you like.
1: Producerial things Yeah. He'd
0: like, be like, you know, if you can't hit this spot, you know, like, or if we could do this, this would like help us out. And then, you know, a guy like that, that has faith in you, you want to please them. You know what I mean? So it's like, you want to do your best for them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean that was like the best, the best moment of my career was uh, you know we were, like he he'd, he'd had me into his office at his house to go over the script the first time and it was um you know he'd just been Batman right and so this is a guy right. that like I didn't know what screenwriting was until Good Will Hunting he won an Oscar yeah and uh, I'm sitting across from him and he like there's some line in the pilot I wish I could remember what the line was but he like remembered it and said it out loud and then like fell over on the couch laughing. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. That's
1: pretty cool. Yeah. Hey,
0: this is pretty cool. This is uh and I was like, I think it's going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to be all right from here.
1: So oh, yeah, you got to go a little, pull the mic in a little bit closer to you because it's, sure. it's getting a lot. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. That's what I was thinking. I mean, just, and, and we will certainly get into more than just sitting on a hill, but yeah, um, that's what i was thinking you got Ben Affleck Matt Damon Jen Todd who's just a beast i mean Memento oh, yeah, Jen to, Todd is she she's done big films small films then the Austin Powers movie she's and she's and she's just a great human being then you got Tom Fontana you got Kevin Bacon how you know did you it, this year, I would imagine, must have been somewhat surreal. I mean, starting from that story, from, you know, meeting Ben, sitting with him. Yeah, you know. I
0: mean, it was pretty, like, it was pretty surreal in the sense that it was, um, you know, there, there would be those moments where you kind of, like, stop and look and you're, like, like, you know, it's, like, sort of, like, oh, yeah, I was a guy, like, riding the, the tea home with blood pouring down my face, like
1: 10 yeah. years ago, you yeah. know what I mean?
0: And suddenly like, Matt, I premiere with my name, like, you know, with the, something I created is on the marquee and for some reason they're putting me on stage with all these famous people. Like, you know, there's yeah. moments like that, but really like, um, you know, part of the thing that you don't expect to ever happen, I think, when in, in this industry, when when you have a little bit of success is like, like the struggle never really stops. You know, and it's, like, the way I've always tried to stay right-minded about it is that, like, I still think of it as, like, it's part of the job. It's part of the gig, you know? So, it's, like, I don't, you know, someone said it to me once, like, the best the best advice I got early on was that it doesn't cost anybody anything to call you a genius, right? So, it would always be, like, that was always something I remember to try and keep right size. So, like, with, like, Kevin Bacon, for instance, it's, like, you know, that guy's it's a universal name like you go it's yeah. like colombo like you go yeah. to you go to machu Picchu, people and people are gonna know who kevin bacon is and i'm sitting across from him and he's telling me how great the script is and i'm like you know it which is like it, it's a huge honor but at the same time like it's also like something you got to recognize where i'm like this guy's gonna get paid a lot of money to do this do you know what i mean so yeah. it's sort of like this thing where it's like i'm like yeah i'm like well. How much does he like it? Is, is it like, is it enough? Right. Like when, well, you know, Showtime's really going to take care of a guy like this. Like the, that, the, like that sort of helped me stay right. So there's nothing against Kevin, it, but it's sort of like, you know.
1: Just to keep yourself yeah. d- with the work.
0: Yeah. The big, like the big compliments, like big surreal things are like when, like people actually like risk something with it. Like the biggest, biggest compliment I like in surreal moment was uh, Kevin Dunn asked to be on the show like that blew my mind. I mean that guy he's a
1: great actor.
0: Well, he for years he'd been just my my favorite character. He's like I mean I would watch Veep just for him. Yeah. Um and when we were casting the show he he wrote a, an email to Jen Todd and I and and just asked to be a part of it. And then, like that, you know, you so it's like a lot of guys like when they get the role, it's always like, you know, if you ask a guy for it, it's like, well, what's it going to entail? How much are you going to pay me? Like, Kevin Dunn just asked to be a part of it. Yeah. And it was like, you never see people put, like, their time forward like yeah. that and say, like, you know, put it where, like, their mouth is. Like, and it just that, it's like, holy fucking shit. Like, this guy is an incredible actor and, like, it's just my script that's hooked him into it. Like Yeah. You now he's so it's just... That guy's got a special place. I like. I walk in traffic for him. Well,
1: he's he's so great. I, I felt lucky to have worked with him a little bit this year and get to talk to him. And he was telling me stories from um, Mississippi burning and like, oh yeah, you, you know. Because I was talking about Hackman. He reminds me of that kind of actor, that Hackman kind of, yeah. You know where he he you know not see. He's not acting. He's just there, and he's got such a presence. But he's not as we were talking about before we started rolling, he's not calling attention to himself. No. And that's yeah. what calls your attention to him. He's just so comfortable with it. And I mean, it's,
0: you watch him and it's, he's, he really is, mis- and it was, I mean, there are a lot of great actors on the show and it would be guys that would just watch him and just be like, like, he's so fucking good. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just that idea of like, it's, it, it. you know, there's a lot of work going into it. Because it looks so natural It looks effortless. Yeah, Yeah. it's just like, he's like Ken Griffey Jr., you know what I mean? It's just, the swing is just perfect. And, I mean, he was, and he's just a pleasure to have around. I mean, that guy, that guy makes me laugh hotter than fucking anyone. I mean, I like, I hang, his family's been like really good to me. Like, I go over there all the time in his house and he'll just be like, you know, tell stories like this guy's. He's, he's been around so long, done so many times. And he's, he's, stories about like John Candy. Yeah. 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 Like, I sit there and listen to that guy for hours.
1: Yeah. Well, you, okay. So you're talking about telling stories. I had read something about you with your grandfather and kind oh, yeah. of his, when you were a kid. And I don't even know if you, had this on your mind, like if you were thinking at the time, I'm going to be a writer, probably not, maybe, I don't know. But tell us a little bit about your grandfather and kind of like his, what you, what you got from him in terms of like storytelling and, and style and all of it.
0: It was really like my grandfather, my grandparents, my, they were my mother's parents. They were like, um, they were really my parents when I was, when I was growing up, my parents, my you know, my mom and dad worked like 70 or 80 hours a week. And I was the first kid. Like I was, again, the whole family. We had Like at that point in time, we had a big family. It was very close, but I was the only kid. Like no one had had kids yet. So I think the deal was they were like, well, we'll work when our kids are young so that we can, when they can actually remember and enjoy it, like we'll be there with them. And so what ended up happening was I spent so much time with my grandparents, like, you know, I was born in Quincy and that's where my grandparents lived. But like, we always had a house in Plymouth. But what would happen was I'd wake up in the morning, get in the car, go back to sleep, wake up in Quincy, my grandparents' house. I'd leave there at night, fall asleep in the car, wake up in my bed in Plymouth, fall back asleep. But, you know, so it's just like, Quincy is what I knew growing up. And right. I, my grandparents' house was like, that's what I consider the house that I grew up in. And uh, what was convenient was like, when I was a kid and had no one to watch me, my grandfather had been um dying like he took like twenty five years to die so it was like we had this nice arrangement when I was little that it was basically like the two of us were making sure the other one didn't kill themselves in the middle of the day <laughs> and so this guy like you know my grandfather had been a marine he was a you know he looked like you know he was a big guy. And, I mean, he's one of those those people, like, you still run into people who remember him and, like, some favor he did them. The biggest personality in the world. But he was sick. Like, he had, like he was, like, strapped to an oxygen machine. So he couldn't really move and couldn't really take me anywhere. And so that's what we did at Pass the Time is we watched, we'd watch old movies or he'd just make up stories. And then, I don't know, I just must have been the personality I had. Like, I would just make up these lies to, to compete with his stories. Yeah. And that's how we spent the time. And I mean, he, I always like the way I usually phrase it is I was like, he was a little bit of a con artist in like a in sort of like a benevolent way, but I was kind of like his last con, which is like, in you know, the guy, when he was, when he finally did, he did not want people crying about him. Like, you know, he didn't want like a big weeping thing. It wasn't like his, he was Scottish and like, I just wasn't his thing. And so, He'd pump me full of these stories. And when he died, I was like, I was only like nine years old. and this, But this is how I started writing, was that um, someone asked, like the priest or something asked if one of the kids wanted to, to say something or write something. And in my like nine-year-old uh, grandiose way, I, I thought that was a eulogy. And it was really important and that I had to write. So I f- sat down and forced myself to do this thing I I'd, I'd really never done before. Um, that I had no example of how to do. I just forced myself to write the, write this story. And what ended up happening was like when it was read at the funeral, I put in all these bullshit stories he'd sold me on (laughs) that I thought were true. And so the priest started reading it out, or I think it was my grandmother's friend started reading it out at the funeral. And, you know, in this packed church, all the people that knew him really well started laughing. Yeah. Because it was stuff about, like, how he'd been, like – because he told me, like, fought, like, modern-day pirates and that they'd slashed his stomach open <laughs> and it was, like, an appendix guy, you know, so stuff like that. And, like – so to him, that would have been, like, the funniest thing in the world was that, like, all these people in this church look at my family, like, who are these fucking animals that are, like, laughing hysterically at a man's eulogy? Like, that would have <laughs> just been – something he thought was funny. And it just, I don't know if he like intended, but that was, I always say it was like, that was like his last con. Uh,
1: that's great. I mean, uh, yeah, I get the same thing. Italian grandfather. And he used yeah. to tell us how, he, you know, the horse on Bigaman Avenue. Yeah. And he, how, like the horse was, <laughs> there was a wild horse going down the yeah. avenue and he he punched it and knocked it out. He's like, pow. <laughs> so we would tell that story. You yeah. Know? it was like, but, but it, it's, it's the same kind of thing, but it's, it's great to hear that. Like that you, were nine. And I don't know, I don't know if for you, that was like a formal thing where you're all of a sudden now you're going, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. Or if that was just in you and then laid dormant for a while. And then it was this thing I always had in my, in my hip hop
0: Cause what it, what it did for me was I had this idea then it was the first time I realized I could do something that adults couldn't. Cause like my mother and my father and my aunt and uncle, like they, like the way my mom put it was like, she said, we're too broken. Like no one, no one can do it. And so- Too broken? Yeah. They were too yeah. broken up. Like they couldn't, no one, no one could sit down and write anything. And so it was like this responsibility that was given to me and I, I pulled it off. And so, you know, I was a terrible hockey player. I couldn't skate backwards. You know, I was a terrible <laughs> baseball player, but like I- that was one thing that I could do that adults couldn't. And I was only nine when I realized they could do. So it was this thing I always kept in my back pocket of like, you know, I was like, you know, that's something that like, if anything, if all else fails, I can do that. And then all else failed. Well,
1: how I was going to say, how were you otherwise in school? Were you like, a total rascal who like didn't really apply himself in school or or were you into like any writing or or no, reading or
0: I, I was always like there were things that like i was the first kid that like you know saw pulp Fiction. like i was always like i the the literature in my family is always movies like that's you know it's like some people like for some reason like i, I don't know i wouldn't say they were like film buffs but they, we talked about movies all the time. That was sort of like, that was like the mythology that everyone passed down. It was the movies that they, was like, like Bridge Over the River Kwai and Slapshot and like, and you know, just these movies that everyone watched and could reference. And so I started watching like adult movies really young. And then that, like, you know, I the AFI list came out and I would go down those lists and I'd be the kid that would, I would ride like five miles to the library and rent, you know, movies that like a, 10 or 12, like 11 or 12 year old probably shouldn't watch like taxi driver and yeah uh, you know apocalypse now and stuff like that and it i was always very interested in that kind of thing but you know i didn't like reading um i was good in school but it was being good in school to me was kind of a hustle because i've always been a fucking loud mouth and i like my mouth never stops getting me in trouble um but I learned in school early enough that, like, if, if I was a straight-A student, it was really hard for them to fuck with me. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, like, when I was in high school and when I was in college, literally for six years, whatever school I was in, they tried to kick me out once a year. Like, they tried to expel me, tried to void my tuition, like, tried to kick me in. I would always... I'd be like, yeah, it's going to look real good for you when like you kick out the working class kid with a 4.0 GPA. Yeah. For doing what?
1: Where was that? Like Emerson? Did you have, you had a, you had a thing with, were you, were you not into their, like, did you feel like they were too, um, they didn't challenge you enough or. Well, it was
0: just, I mean, like the thing with me and like, when I went to, like when I. When I went to college, you know, when I got my undergrad degree and I got my master's. I went for writing. Like, I mean, it was really the thing I, um, at the end of high school, I was like, my dad even said, it, he was like, you better work for yourself or you just be fucking homeless because there's no boss in the world that's going to be able to stand working with you. And so I, that was kind of, it was kind of like Martin Eden where it was like, all right, well, this is the easy, this is the only way, like the quickest way I know to being my own boss. And so when I went to Emerson, it was... And the same thing happened at USC. The writing programs were... It was almost like the people there and like the teachers and the students both knew this was like... It was almost like a way station of growing up. Yeah. Like, I can remember... Like get a
1: certificate kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it was almost like summer camp, but like it was... It cost $100,000, you know? It was this idea... Like, I remember graduating from Emerson and standing in line. And I, I had a job at the Boston Herald already. And I, and the kids that I'd been through all the, like the writing program, I thought I was like, well, what do you, what do you do tomorrow? And they were like, oh, I have to like, I have to go find a real job. And it was just this thing of, it was like, what well, how do you, and it was almost like they just turned this corner on their life. Like, it was like, they went to school and got the degree and it was like, oh, I got to go find a teaching job. or I gotta, Like they weren't,
1: they weren't really going to do it.
0: Yeah. They weren't going to do it. They weren't going to try whatever they had to do to be writers. And it was sort of like that always kind of pissed that lackadaisical attitude always pissed me off about those those colleges, you know? I mean, the big thing that I always, with Emerson was that to be able to afford to go there, I, I had an academic scholarship and you had to keep a really high GPA. It was like, you had to keep a 3.5 or you'd lose it. And the classes that they made you take eventually had nothing to do. Like the whole bit about Emerson was that you go, it was almost like, they were like, this is as close as you can get to being a trade school for the arts. But then to keep your scholarship, you'd have to take these classes that had nothing
1: to do. With what you wanted to do. With
0: anything. Yeah. So yeah. it would be, I mean, like I remember the second year I showed up and it was, the class was like evolutionary biology. <laughs> and the syllabus like the teacher admitted it, it was like he was like this is a graduate level syllabus in like evolutionary science and i'm like what the fuck does this have to why and i have to do this to be able to go here and this is going to suck all my time from doing what i'm supposed to be doing so i just would get fucking pissed and i you know but usually i mean i had really good teachers at emerson like that guy that teacher I told, I said, I just said it to him, I was like, this is bullshit. I'm like, this is, fu-. he he was, he had like a questionnaire, like, what does this class mean to you? And I was like, it's one more fucking attempt to take my scholarship away from me. Yeah. And he sort of pulled me aside and he was like, hey, you know, if you don't give me a problem, I won't give you a problem. And it was the guy, like, literally I just kept my mouth shut and like contributed to this guy. And the guy loved me after that. I mean, it was always yeah. like, they, like, usually they were these really great teachers that would be, especially like when we, later on, it got into like these philosophy courses and it would, or psychology courses. And I think the professors just liked having me there. Cause I was an example of like aberrant psychology. <laughs> like it'd be like, they'd just be discussing sociopathy and they, and like, they just like, point to you in the corner. I ju- yeah. I just say something really <laughs> fucked up and they'd be like, this is awesome. Like, you yeah. know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times like I, like there was one time in one class at Emerson, like some kid I was fucking around. I was joking around and like, this kid, this music theater kid told me to fuck myself. And I I started joking with him back and he said, fuck you again. And I'm like, I can't remember what I said to him, but he said it, he said it a third time. And I was like, I had three times now fuck. And I threw a table and went after him. And the teacher was like, it's like 60 year old woman. And she was just, she got in my way and just started laughing hysterically. Cause it was like, I can't remember it that was like a we were studying like monkey behavior and the fact that I threw like a fucking tissue was like, do you understand what you're doing? Yeah. Like, are you doing this on purpose? Cause if you're doing it on purpose, it's brilliant. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I just didn't, this is like, just yeah, who I, just, I am. I was like, I guess like, I was like, all right. Like I, I was like, I'm not even offended. you call me a gorilla. Cause I actually see a point. But
1: so, so was that just like front, like where, w- w- first of all, I'm thinking, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk cuz you have like like when you you went there and you're like yeah this is just getting in my way it's like you've got like a chip on your shoulder that i think is almost part of your process it it feels like it like it's like like a you're like i'm not going to necessarily um i don't want to do it the way you want me to do it and that and that vibe I think, is in City on a Hill. Yeah. That, I mean, that's like in the fabric of City on a Hill, I think.
0: I, I mean, I think for me, the thing was, I realized at a certain point, like the only time I was ever actually happy was when I was getting myself out of trouble. And so like the only like real recipe for to being happy was like causing more trouble. Yeah. You know, so it was like this thing of like, that's what sort of entertained me. I mean, like really, like I, like there's, Yeah, I really just always wanted to be left alone to do my job, you know, and it would be this thing when I would get fucked. It would always seem like I'm sure these people weren't trying to fuck with me, but it would always seem like for me, it was so clear where I was going that when they like, you know, inserted something like they might have been trying to help, but either way, it just seemed like. You're getting in my fucking way. Pulling
1: you off course. Yeah. And I'm like,
0: you know, I would be like, well, this is where I want to end it. And they'd be, you know, and I was just, so to me, it was like, you're fucking me up. Like, you realize like you're fucking me up. Like, and then it would just, then I get angry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I've calmed down a little bit. I mean, I don't know if Showtime would say that, but I think, <laughs> I think
1: I've calmed down a <laughs> But is bit. that kind of like, if you have like a, you know, I'll ask people sometimes, what's your superpower kind of, you know, like, is that the thing for you that you feel like what, what makes you, you, or what makes you as far along as you are at, I don't know, what are you, 33-ish? Yeah. Um, I usually you say know, I'm 35 because I'm 30, a lot of shape.
0: 35. <laughs> like, well, usually like you're
1: 30. That happened on the show. Like someone was like. But no, but that's, I mean, you know, you've, you've got this, this big hit show on Showtime. You're relatively young, but I mean, is that, you think that's part of the recipe of your success is that you're just like. No, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be talked out of it. Yeah. I I I've, I've got my opinions on what it's going to be and I'm and I'm not going to dilute it to try to please you.
0: Well, I mean, I think the thing for me was always that um like as a kid, I was like I look back on it like I was always kind of up in my head. Do you know what I mean? Like I was always in like I didn't really pay attention to anything that was going on, but what motivated me usually was when, I mean, it's like, it's almost like a, an American cliche where someone told me I couldn't do something. Yeah. Like I was a BC student until someone told me I was dumb and I got really fucking pissed. And I, if I got a B after that, it was like a fucking tragedy. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, and yeah. it was like that. And that was always the thing. Like, it was always, like, I was always very content to be doing what, like, I like to be off doing what I did until someone or somebody was like, oh, you're too stupid to handle this, or like, you know, you're too poor to be able to do that or go there, or you can't do this. And then I would get, I like, it's just that desire to be like, I'm going to show you. Yeah. Like, I'm going to shove it down your throat, like that. So, like, I think my, like, if there's a superpower, it would be revenge.
1: Yeah. And where do you think you got that from, from, like, your grandparents or your parents or just in your DNA?
0: I think so. I mean, it was always, like, I think it's relatively, like, a like a, I think it's, like, a Scottish trait. Like, it's just this, it's like, if you look at the history of Scotland, they, like, just kind of wanted to be left alone, like, <laughs> behind a wall. And then when it's, like, when people would fuck with them, they would just come out of the hills and kill everybody. Yeah. And then go back. And it was, but I don't know. I mean, I think, like, that... that I mean, like, I grew up around guys, like, the guys that, like, even my grandma, I mean, they were, it's, they were trouble. we were all troublemakers, I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of, like, I put a little bit of that in the show, like, there's a scene in episode two where they're pulling a a Brinks truck out of the water, and Kevin Bacon says to, uh, Kevin Bacon's character says to Jerry Shea's character, who's, like, the good guy, like, just bring you back to Friday nights at Nantasket Beach, and it was, like, it's a thing I realized when I was... I first moved out here that like not everybody's like uncle like <laughs> that's my stomach <laughs> like aunts and like uncles stole cars on Friday nights yeah like like even my like like uncle that wanted to be like a priest steal cars. you know what I mean <laughs> It was just just what like, you did that's just what they did and I mean yeah. it was like a big turning point in my life personally was when someone like a, a guy like my uncle Tim who was a like, fucking lunatic in the best way I mean he's just he was my best friend when I was in college. And he was like, you know, like normal people don't go out on Friday nights and like get drunk and get into fights. Like, that's not like, there's another way to live your life. And like, I know he'd done that. So I was like, I didn't think he was a pussy for telling me that. And I, I, it really had never occurred to me that, that there was another way that other people who weren't like pussies did that. I don't know if you, can you say pussy anymore?
1: I, you just said it, so All I right, guess But it was like this I'm thing. Sure, I'm it was sure like, I'll hear something back about it, but, you but know. But it was this, this in mass, like money. I
0: never thought, like, it really, that really was like, and I'm not saying I lived up to that. I got my ass kicked a lot, but it was this idea of like, well, you had to try. And that's what we did. I mean, we like every every Friday and Saturday night, it was like, he just got ha- like absolutely hammered and just got into trouble. And I didn't think like other people who were mass, like it, that other masculine people didn't do that. Yeah, like it was just that was normal to me, and it was this thing. So it's
1: and then w- so what happened when that when that turned for you? How old were you? Like when he said that, or when you turned? Was it when you came out west to go no, to it was USC, a of years or was before, it before I was,
0: that? I was like halfway through college. I was like twenty when when that happened, and it was just how did that shift you? Well, it just made me more like. It like sort of tightened my drive, you know, it was I mean what was weird was we would always the the guys that I hung out with were well, always like these I, I always like would gravitate towards like the working class kids in and, and anything and it would always we always sort of felt like uh the guys I grew up on, we always grew seemed to have grown up around people who had money and it was a good stark reminder of what you didn't have, the opportunities you weren't going to have. And so there's always this like you know, we'll show you kind of attitude. And whether that meant like beating the hell out of somebody or, you know, trying to steal their girlfriend or whatever like that was kind of we were always like out to instigate and cause trouble and um when I real like, you know, when I had that talk into it sort of it gave me a lot more time, almost. Yeah, know? it was like I didn't have to because it was I, I never had money, so it was always like the build up to Friday was like trying to scrounge together like how we were gonna get twenty five dollars to buy you know, uh, you know thirty beers, you know, and it just right. you know and like it was sixty beers to last us the whole week, like you know two days, and so it was like I had all this time and you know before I was like a straight A student, and uh, after that I would be like I'd be done. I'd be done with like the semester's work like halfway through the semester, and so then it was like, I it just like it it opened up this world of experience. It was sort of, you know, i like left home for the first time. Like you know, like really yeah. until I was twenty one, like I'd never, you know, we'd had like week weekend or week long vacations like to Myrtle Beach, but it was like right. but I never really had spent any time like
1: outside of four ninety five. But did it end up, like, are you still tight with those guys you grew up with? Yeah, or did I mean, you the kids I grew kinda... up
0: with are really good kids. It's funny because, like, I grew up first, but now, like, they're, like, much more stable adults than I am. Like, and they were, I mean, it was, like, the guys that I got, like, that were, like, I really caused trouble with. Like, one went into Navy intelligence, one's a firefighter and has been a firefighter for, like, 10 years in New Bedford, and the other one is... Uh, he works for the Department of Energy now, but he was the war hero over in Afghanistan. He took apart bombs in Afghanistan. Huh. Like, those were the, the, like, we were the f- four kids that would be, like, puking in an alley in Boston and, like, running from the cops. Actually, we haven't really ran from, it would be, like, I would be the one, like, there talking, like, my us out of trouble with the cops. Like, that was what we did every Friday night. And, I mean, those kind like, they were lunatics,
1: but we don't, like... They all turned out all right. We all turned out all right. So how much of your, because it sounds like you had a colorful upbringing, how much of that, like when you write, are you... First of all, do you have like a, a, a daily routine of writing? Because you're, you know, we talked a little bit before yeah. we were rolling. And it sounds like you're prolific with writing. Like you have to write. Yeah. Is it? Are you, are you a guy who's getting up and going like from seven a.m. to three p.m. I'm writing, or 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 is it? What's your your kind of daily process if there is one?
0: It depends. I mean, what I usually try to like, um, I try to do is to have is to. I, like I call it like rolling projects, so it'll be, you know, for instance, like this summer, right? Like I, um, when we f- when I finished producing City on a Hill, I'd started writing this collection of short stories, and so it was I was doing it that a little bit at a time because once the show stopped filming, it was like large gaps of time excuse me before we had to like edit or to mix and so i started this collection of short stories and then the show ended and i finished that collection of short stories and then when i'd finished that collection of short stories i went back to this novel i had written last year and i edited and polished that and then when i was done with the novel i outlined and then wrote a screenplay and then it's like so i i kind of like to roll with it but you know sometimes it doesn't always happen and if, and if that's happening it's it is very much like a daily routine like i'm you know i'm up at Somewhere between seven and ten o'clock in the morning, and I'll work until I get tired of it. Like I just these, I've gotten better at. I used to just, I'd work until I dropped, and now I've I've learned that like I actually like doing it, and then I'm I'm good at it, and it'll still be good tomorrow. Yeah, I can kind of back away a little bit. Um, but you you know sometimes it looks different. Like now, like I like I had this string of stuff that I did, and now it's like the the morning ritual is like I'll get up and. I'll start going back through notes and I'll start picking up all the projects and start considering what's like the thing I can do before the show starts again. And I'll start, you know, a lot of it's research. Like a lot of my job most of the time is um, is reading now. It's just the volume. Is it reading?
1: Notes. Do you also go to people? Will you go like, you know, if you're doing a story on, um, you know, a guy who's defusing a bomb, are you going and meeting with people? Are you on the phone with them or is it a lot of reading?
0: It's a lot of reading mostly. I mean, I'll go to someone when... Um, it's a detail question because unless, cause like, you know, I don't really, like I I don't do like non, nonfiction. So the, when it comes to doing a fictionalized thing, I, I like to take like a really broad general look at it and try and understand like, okay, what is this about? Like, what is the thing, like what's running through it? Um, how do I break that down into one sentence or one word? Like, what is it about? And then I'll start developing characters from that point. And when I have an idea of a character, an idea of someone, then then I start doing like the real detail heavy stuff where I'll go talk to people or I'll, I'll make calls or I'll make emails. But, you know, it's like, I want, you know, As well, if, you know, usually like, if it's something like, you know, especially if it's something I really don't know anything about, then... I'll do that stuff early on. I'll go and call because it's usually the way I usually break things down is always it's really understanding like what someone in a certain situation thinks they want and what they're afraid of. So it'll be, you know, that thing of like, you know, if it's a guy taking apart a bomb, you know, you can kind of assume enough to like get a broad idea. The he's like, he doesn't want that bomb to blow up in his face. Right. But then that asks begs the question of like, well,
1: what's he really?
0: Yeah, well, why does he take the bomb part in the in the first place? You know, so it's to me like writing is always just like it's a series of questions you just have to ask yourself, and it's like you got to find that one question that really interests you to get you in there. So like, to use the Hurt Locker example, it's like why does someone do that? Like you know, so it's like yeah. we begin that. So for me, I begin that way. In talking to someone, it's usually I, in the past. I've usually resisted it, especially if it's if it's something that was based on a true story. Uh, Casey Affleck had this great he he developed this project. It was actually an excellent script about Josh Hamilton, and uh, he'd gone and met Josh Hamilton when he when he bought the rights to his story, and he'd had this conversation with him when he was like, "What's your favorite movie?" And Josh Hamilton was like, "Oh, it's The Natural." And Casey was like, "This will never be that." And you will probably hate this. Like, so you have to understand that. Like you, it's not, it'll probably never live up to what you're expecting it to be. And you most likely hate it.
1: Yeah.
0: And for me, like, like I never really wanted to have that conversation with anybody. You know? So it's like, I did this movie a while back, a script. It was based on Las Vegas cop. And, uh, there was a book written about him, but in the book, you know, he was, he'd been like a wild guy and then he sort of found Jesus and, Someone was like, do you, do you want to go meet him? And I'm like, I really don't want to meet this nice Christian man that I'm going to have to write into a Sean Penn character because he's going to resent me. And I don't really have that much control over it, you know? So it's sort of, I'll go there if, especially if it's like, you know, like on the show, a lot of times if we ran, if it was character came to a decision that they had to make, I would, you know, and I, I didn't really know enough. I would call someone and be like, if you were in this position, you know, this weighing on you, where would your mind go? You yeah. Know, it's like that kind of, that's what I consider like real detail work is like, you know, trying to, I don't know. I usually try and take, like I said, like a big view of it. And it's like, what are the emotions involved in this? And then once I can kind of grasp that and kind of grasp what that world should look like, then I can go talk to someone and be like, find out what it's really like. Cause then at least I'm understanding what, like if, if you come in with a really broad look, it's almost like adapting what the audience is going to expect. Yeah. So you can see from the iron right, so like, if I'm going to go write a cop show about Boston, right. <clears throat> what does the audience expect that to look like is like, that's going to be your first thought. And so if that's your first thought, it's like, all right, well, how do I come in from the left then? Right. And hit them sideways. And it's like, so I try to go like big and then learn everything I can about a situation. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of the work ethic, like, you know, to sort of make myself, um comfortable. When I, when I, when I went to USC, like they really sold the idea. Like that was the biggest, like the biggest and best film school in the world. And I was 23 and the median age of that program was like 27. And I didn't know who was going to show up. You know, I was like some shit bum from Quincy. So it was like, you know, when I was at Emerson, I was one of the best writers there, but I didn't know what it was going to look like. Like, That's Boston. I didn't know what it was going to look like in an international program. So like way I sort of, I wrapped my head around it was, I was like, I don't care how talented these people are. No one is going to outwork me. And so like that, that's always been a thing that I've done t- is like, I like I refuse to be outworked. So if I get a job, say, right, like if I go in for an open writing assignment or someone brings me a book and it's about, you know, uh, ambulance drivers, right. I'm going to learn everything about that. I'm going to read every book there is out there about it. I'm going to read the manual of how the truck drives and then I'll start talking to people. But it's like, I want want to know what people expect first and then... And then mess with it. Mess yeah. with it,
1: yeah. Yeah. And it also sounds like you have, but you have like a, in some way at least, a writing from the inside out in, in that you're putting yourself in these, you know, what's the situation, what's the theme, what am I working out, and then maybe use the world of the of the yeah. piece to, to as the background, but you're kind of...
0: Yeah, I mean placing it's usually, yourself in
1: there, which we all have to do, whether we're actors or or writers.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's always like a, I think why I, I gravitated to screenwriting, um, at least like and why like why I was able to run with it so quickly is it just it's the way. You Like, you know, if you read, like, a lot, like, books about writing, like, you summarize, like, a Stephen King, like, who come up with a, you know, he has his way of coming up with an idea, and then he just writes. Yeah. Then he lets the characters dictate it. With screenwriting, at least the way they teach it, you can't do that. Like, you got to know where it goes. And for some reason, that kind of it's not necessarily linear thinking. Like it's almost non-linear thinking. It's like the idea of like, all right, like I have this beginning, but this like, now I got to know the ending. If I figure out the ending and come back and write the second scene, you know what I mean? It's like figuring out that, like that kind of back and forth ping pong really just suited my mind. It's like, I, I get bored easily. So it was like, I could always jump around. And so usually what happened, like the tension usually that that drives any of the stories I, I like to write is, like, is coming up with that, or feeling like a big idea, like I'll start out and be like, well, you know, if, if I'm starting from nothing, if I have no idea of, of what I want to write or anything, I'll just, I'll think about like, well, what's bothering me right now? Like in my life, like what conflict am I worrying about? And I'll just try and, is it like, am I obsessed with fear? Is it like, you know, am I really afraid of something? Is it like, if I, am I really pissed off and want like, to prove someone wrong it's like things like that like what, whatever i'm feeling and then i'll start all right like if this is the overarching most, if i want to write a movie about like that's how boss the script i had the boss of strangle came about was i was obsessed with the notion of of like, like what makes people afraid yeah and so it was like i want i just was i don't know i was trying i can't remember how it came up but it was like this idea of I think I might've even read a book about him, but it was something about like, I, I read that story and there was just so much fear in it. Like from both, all angles, like from the killer's point of view, from the people who were catching him. So it was like, I had this idea of like fear. And then if that's the big idea of what this thing is about, then I look at it personally. and like, well, what am my like beliefs in this? and like, how do I deal with that? And then it's like, that's the launching point for a character. It might be the, the lead character, it might be the bad guy, it might be something, but it's like, you know, I usually do it based on like, whatever I'm going through because that's what I'm gonna be interested in writing about.
1: Yeah. And that's yeah, that's what's alive for you right then. Yeah. As as you're doing it. Otherwise it's like you're just doing a gig. Yeah. You know. Exactly. Which is which is, you know, I am interested in uh wondering that, like if you are ever working on someone else's assignment. And then I'm also wanna just ask you a little bit about I'm i I'm surprised about the short stories in the novel. I didn't realize that you wrote in other forms other than oh, yeah. screenplays, um, which is, I I think, somewhat unique. I feel like a lot of people seem like they're one or the other.
0: I, I mean, I didn't... I, I started doing it, like, a, I, about, like, th- three or four years ago. Because what, what ended up happening was, like, I mean, I probably have, like, 25 to 30, like, unproduced screenplays. And so what was happening was, like, I would... You know, I'd have you know, I, I would get a job, or I'd I'd have a great spec idea, and I would be, you know, I'd be working on those. But then there would be these lulls where it would be trying to find the next job, or trying to sell this job, or you know, waiting for a a big thing. Is like you know, we don't realize as a like when you as a writer because usually you get for me like if I get it a good idea and it's just mine, I just go write it. But sometimes you'll have that great idea, sell it, and then you won't actually start writing till six months later. You have to learn how to be able to, you know, sort of separate yourself
1: from it. And do you have to open back up that Pandora's box that yeah. got you to it's write in the like, first Yeah, it's sort of like, yeah, it's
0: like sort of to leave like a question unanswered so you can come back and figure it out. But, you know, so it was, what was happening was like, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't busy enough. Like, I you know, I've had like, you know, sometimes... It's like they always say it about this industry, it's like feast or famine. Like, you know, I'd book five jobs at once. And then for seven or eight months, I'd roll those five jobs. And then at the end of it, it would be like, well, what now? Yeah. And, you know, I would be, I would always be writing a spec script somehow or a spec pilot. And what ended up happening was I, I just got really, really bored with the form. And so I would, you know, I'd be challenging myself. Like, there was one year where I, I think I wrote like three or four spec scripts that were in completely different genres, and a and two of them were in genres I'd never worked in. And I was trying to write like they were things I wanted to do, but I I tried to make them commercial, and I couldn't get any traction on them when they were done. And I was really really proud of the scripts I turned in, like they were just like weird and fucked up, and like what I thought was very commercial, but it just it just didn't click. Yeah. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep, like, you know, I, I can't keep writing scripts that just go nowhere. That I'm like, because usually, even when you're writing like stuff for you as a script, or at least when I'm writing a script, there's still a consciousness of like, this is what will sell, or this yeah. is what will get made, or this is how you get this made. So I started fucking around with short stories and essays again, and it was just something to, something else to do, and I um. But like having worked, written screenplays for ten years, it was like I was able to then transfer like a, that the thought process that worked in in screenwriting, like how I was able to structure it and think about it, in his short stories and novels, and it. It just became something else like, you know, there's just sometimes you just get an idea that you like or I get an idea that I like that I'm like, there's fucking no way anybody will ever make this as a movie.
1: Yeah. Well, so I was game. just thinking it's it's kind of a way to have more control, really. I mean, yeah. e- even though you don't have control over people reading it or selling it, you you have control over fully fleshing it out as opposed to having to wait for producers to come in with yeah. money and actors to come in and directors. and
0: it's- Yeah, it's like, it's more of like, it's a, it's kind of a thing that's just sort of mine Yeah You know And I, I don't really It's I don't have to Make money at it So it's like It's kind of It's something I enjoy doing And it's, it's You know There's just ways you can Play with that form too It's like you know I, Like you know you Have like a Couple of, Like one short story collection I have Is all like horror But like very like um Like grounded It's a, It's horror, like people cause each other. And it's, instead of it being like, you know, um, like a novel where it was just following one character through the whole thing, it was sort of, there's like two storylines that run through the whole thing. And it's like, the stories kind of alternate and like the same people kind of come in and out. It's kind of like a television show in that way, but it's about like, you know, it'd be like an anthology kind of series, but yeah, to give it a perspective, but it was like, there were just these things or scenes that I had that were bought, like I just thought would be really fucking creepy. And I was like, yeah, I'll just do that. You know, it's like, yeah. it didn't, it was really freeing. And it's sort of, it worked a different muscle in my brain than screenwriting. So it was like, I wasn't wearing myself out then to go back into the job.
1: Yeah.
0: Um But yeah, the it's the fiction thing is actually, it made me appreciate like, like uh, it's this writing screenplays is like, it's just, The shit you have to do. Like, I always say, like, 10% of my job is actually writing. Like, 90% of it is dealing with, like, just bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) And politics, the industry, and selling. And And I love the 10%. That 90%, like, is just a fucking headache. But, like, trying to sell a book was, like, way worse like way
1: really yeah it was just like and were you just pitching the idea of the book at that point or no, you actually I, had written it i had then... written this book and i was
0: i, I thought I, I was really really happy with it and it was uh but you know it was just you could tell i mean i'm like it, the insulting thing to me is sort of like it's really weird this happens in all these industries it's like if you've never sold a book before like you might have like for me when i first took a book out i'd been writing movies for 10 years i've been working and I, I i was very fortunate i worked with like big names big powerful people like right away yeah So like i kind of gotta lay of the land of how it works and it's just they would still treat you like you were like fresh out of college and it's just like you get someone's notes or their opinion of the book and i'm like i know you didn't read it yeah like i can tell from this that you didn't you maybe like just say you didn't like it from the first two pages I'm, bullshit me about what the fucking novel is about i mean it's 300 pages like i can tell you didn't read it after 20 like to 10 you yeah. just say you didn't read it you know what <laughs> i mean it just like turns into this whole thing and it's you know a lot of it's like personality like like a like a big problem I, like i had this the first novel i took out was a serial killer book and it, and um it took place in 1988 and it's The whole thing was brutal Like it's You're just supposed to It's The whole idea is watching This guy lose his mind This cop that's chasing This serial killer Lose his mind And uh I had Like had no luck uh, Like Big time agent read it Guy's been around forever Read it And he was like He fucking flipped out And then he sent it to To an editor he trusts, And that guy flipped out And they were like So excited about the whole thing And then Nothing ever happened Like it just It got shot down everywhere And I, you know i went to Michelle McPhee, who's sold a million books and i was like i don't know what the fuck is happening she's like we well, realize like you're writing a book that takes place in 1988 about a guy that's a misogynist and a racist and you have a 92 year old white guy trying to sell it she's like everyone thinks that's reading this is thinks probably thinks you're 55 and that you believe all this shit instead of it being a commentary <laughs> and it's like oh yeah and then I didn't think of that. Like, you yeah. Know, it's like, it's like always weird. I mean, it's like, it's like in Hollywood, it's usually the guy that gets a job is the one that like you just want to be around more often. Yeah. Like the weirdo that like might have like a slightly better idea. You know, so it's like you never really tell, but I just stopped can't. Like when it came to that, like I'm making up money luckily with the like writing for the screen, and it was just like, well, oh, I'll just like write these crazy fucking ideas. And then maybe like, you know, when I blow my brains out, someone will publish them and be like, oh, right. he's a genius.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's good for people, particularly that are listening to this show, for them to hear that, you know, as you and I were, were talking uh, again before we started, we had, we had like a, we had a whole interview yeah, before like the interview. Whole, yeah. <laughs> um, but as we were saying, like, you know, um, it, people will... will look at someone else. They'll look at you and go, man, this guy, you know, it's just like made in the shade. He got, got the big show and the whole thing. And then it, I I think it's useful for people to hear you say that, that it's like, yeah, 10% of your job is the actual writing that you love to do. And 90% is the bullshit. And it's something I talk about all the time on this show, which is like, you, you know, there's, that's what it is. You're not, you're almost not even getting paid for the thing that that you're doing, because you really love that. You're getting paid to be in a position to be available to go do that or to do the training that that enables you to be able to go do that when called upon.
0: And that's, Um, I mean, it's like, it's really how I think like the guys that have all the money exploit us all. Like, it's just because it's- Because they know you really- Because you know, they know you do it for free. Yeah, and they're like, "Well, we'll give you the opportunity." it's like, "Well, I'd really be doing this anyway, but you know, I mean, it's like, a, I mean, that's the thing with me in writing is that, like, like if I'm not right, I have to sit there and listen to my own thoughts, and it's like I, I really don't want to do that. You know so yeah. it's like I'll just, it's like I'd rather just go write, you know, about some fucked up character than have to like think about me. So I'll always be doing it. Um, it's just a matter of like, you know, sometimes you just. You know, actually, the the like doing something else really like took the pressure off me with with the screenwriter because like you know a lot of times you would you, know, you just get in these situations like I can't tell you how many times it's happened where like you know you get a big uh, get a big job and you know it's the guy who hired me. Well, you know we get along great and they they love the take that I have and then you know by the time the script is done and the script is the, you know, the script is written and like, it's been passed around that company. Like that producer has left. Yeah. And gotten a better job, Uh, you know, and it's, you're now stuck with people who didn't hire you who maybe like, weren't there for every conversation to know like the direction this was supposed to go in. And so it's like, they come in and, you know, they basically have to try and manipulate you into doing what they now want. Right. And it's just, so it's this thing of like, you know, it's, I would get, like, especially early on, like, I would I would be very, you know, protective of my work and screen, because I, I, you know, was tr- I was working so hard to make it fucking perfect. And it was always, like, I don't know, it was always, like, I had an idea somehow that it was going to be done when it's just never done. Yeah. And you know, so it was, like, when I had these other things I could be precious about, like you know, going to work on a show and they're like, yeah, this scene or this like sequence doesn't work or going in a movie. And they're like, yeah, we need to make this one. It's like, all right, I don't give a fuck. I'll just go do think, you know, and you just go do it. Yeah. Know? It's just, it sort of took the press because it was, like you said, like it was something that was like, I had control over. Right. It was like, I could just do that. And then it's like, you know, someone's like, oh, I don't, you know, we want to make, I'm trying to think of an example from like, you know, what? City on a Hill would be like, oh, we need to take 10 pages out of the script. And it was like, before I would always be like, but are you going to miss this and this. And then it's just like, now it's like, I'm like, all right, yeah, no, no problem. Let me figure it out.
1: And you just have to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. you just
0: go figure it out. Well, it's
1: that's just, what the, I mean, you know, that's, that's really what this podcast is for me. It's like, a, it's this own little thing that I have on the side that feeds my soul. And I think ends up feeding my work by having me, take my foot off the gas about the work or when I'm in between gigs, I'm not, I'm not as obsessed as I used to be. And yet I'm still get, I'm still kind of feeding my mind. I'm sitting down here talking with you. It's like, it's still, this is still this, these conversations lead into my work, but they kind of give me something else to do outside of it. And I think it's healthy.
0: I have like this, uh, I think it's like this Sicilian part of me is like, I sometimes make up um, like myths about how things work. And I literally have no idea how the brain works, but I have this like image in my head that like, there's a certain point, you need to like kind of flush the toilet. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, you know, so it's just sort of if you like. For, I know for me, like, if I obsess on one thing for too long, I will hate it. Yeah, and it's like, and it's to just sort of use a different like part of my brain, like cut new grooves in it, doing something else. Um, even if it's very similar, it, it's, it's like, it flushes the toilet and then I come back to something and I'm like, oh yeah. Like,
1: yeah, no, I just yeah. had that. Yeah. I just had this thing and my, I think my wife l- really thought I was like losing my mind, but right in the garage there where I did all this like physical work with the, this wood I put up and these panels and everything. And she's like, what are you doing? And And I just, it, it literally like the physical work for me sometimes. Yeah. There's something that just sparks me it's like action i can see it it's tangible i feel great and then i come back here and i'm like okay now it's 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 actually that the way you just described it flushing the toilet because people around you are like what the fuck are you doing yeah and i'm like i'm telling you this is me this is me just i'm working shit out I'm, i'm clearing the deck yeah and so I can come back and actually work.
0: It's funny. It's like it's it's one of the hard parts of being like as like a writer is like a, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. A P. Hamill, and one one of his book like it was actually a fiction book. But he had this um this great line once where the, the character was a writer and he's talking about how hard it was to sustain relationships as a writer because he's like you know people never actually think you're working because yeah. like, and it's hard to explain that sometimes staring out a window for 45 minutes is work is
1: your work. Yeah.
0: And so it's like, that's like, for me, like a big part of that is, you know, I, I, I like, I can fucking talk to anyone. I'm like friends in all walks of life. And, um, you know, like Kevin Tun actually said it, it was like, he was like, conversation's like a competitive sport for you. Like, you know, it's just, because that's what I grew up with. It was always like people shouting and you're on the kitchen table, like people trying to, you know, tell the best joke or be heard or, you know, shit on this. But it was always like, that's what we, you had to be sharp in my family. And so part of it is like, at a certain point, I just need to be like alone. Yeah. And it's just like, I'm like, my friend said it one time. He's like, oh, you just shut up. He's like, I just watched you shut off. He's like, this is over with, isn't it? Like this, like we're done. And I was like, yeah, pretty much. like, Yeah. it's like, I just, whatever is yeah. up there. No, is I have the
1: same thing. I'm a very social person from one point of view. And then I, I could also spend, you know, I could spend days not talking to anybody. If yeah. if, if nobody was around, then I'd be like happy as a clam.
0: I've done yeah. it. Like, it's been a couple of times since I've, I've lived in LA where like, I'll just spin out. And like, it's why I got a Jeep because I would just drive into the fucking, like, desert swearing at somebody like (laughs) just fucking out loud be like that mad that i was like i'm gonna go to this like what coachy's last stand right now and just drive for like 10 hours yeah and have it be like like, and just be like all right it's quiet i can hear myself think and just go back yeah and but it's just like i just have to i don't know what it is it's just like you get like too many voices going in my head at once i'm like i just gotta go to bed
1: yeah, and yet, and yet, it's funny you say that because then that's also your job. Is like you have yeah. all these voices in your head that play themselves out in, in your scripts. Um, so, what, what do you, if you had to say, like, if 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 you know, and maybe you don't have an idea, but like, well, how do you see it? Like, you know, you have, um, you're in a good spot right now. What what does it look like for you in the future? Like, what would make you happiest? Would you want to direct? Would you want to uh, just keep writing? Do, do you, are you kind of just keep doing, like, where you are right now? Or do you have, like, a certain vision for where you want to go?
0: I mean, I would be happy just, just doing, just writing. But, I mean, the reality of it is, like, you know, just writing, like, you know, back in, like, 10 years ago... You know, the goal was like I want to get paid to write, and it's like you know, I'm still pretty much learning how to do the job, and so that was just that was fun, that was exciting, it was them, and like at this point, like I'm pretty good at my job, and so like when I like to really challenge, like the way to challenge myself and to write better stories, I kind of price myself out of the market because it then it becomes. When something becomes so, like, really the best movies and best stories are always so specific, they become universal, like right? Like, Goodfellas, right? That's the best movie ever made. But there's only one person who could have ever directed that movie, and it's Martin Scorsese. But the problem is, like, when you're a writer and you're trying to write to that level, there's not always a Scorsese that's going to see your thing and be like, I got to do this, like, Pelegi hat, you know? It's like you, you know, you... The window of uh, the the amount of directors that like want to handle something like that is it gets smaller and smaller especially if you're stuff like mine like my all of my stuff that's it's very me and it's fun to write is usually like it's dark in a way and but like it's funny and it's like you know it's it's complicated and you just see it man like you just the weird thing about this industry is like you know people do everyone here is doing this for a living and is really. It's one of the like, more heartbreaking things about doing the show was that I realized that the people who can tell the difference between like a great script and a good script is maybe like one in a hundred. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. would be like they just don't, they can't see it, or they like, they don't want to see it, or it's just a job to them to do it. And so I think eventually, like what what I'm trying to do, like what I'm trying to do now, and like spin off from the show is is to direct like a, a small feature because it's in. That's I think the only way I'm gonna be able to, to keep writing the things that I wanna write.
1: Yeah. Or is there a director out there right now that you would say, like, that's my dream direct I mean, maybe it's Affleck, I don't know. Is there somebody yeah, that I mean like, like that gets your voice and
0: literally like everything I have goes to if I think it's of mild interest to him goes to Ben. And it's fun it's it's pretty funny because like the last ever since he hired me. I'd say half the meetings, more than half the meetings, I get people that want to meet me. It's it's always just to to get the Ben somehow. Like yeah. people buy my scripts, at least you know buy the option on my scripts, like hoping he'll do it. And I always tell him, I'm like, yeah, man. Like if you want Ben to do your job, like this is what you do. I was like, this is what you do. He's like, you send him the script, send him a copy of the check, like a photo stat of the check that you will give him when he says yes, and he will do it. I'm like, I'm, I'll tell you, he will take that job every time. And no one ever listens. Yeah. And it's funny because I'll tell him and he's like, I actually didn't, didn't know if that would work the first time I said it. And he was like, yeah, that probably would work. But, <laughs> you know, usually everything I write, like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be like, do you have any interest in doing this? And, you know, he'll so just be, you know, that's why he's great. He'll just say no or I can't right now. Or yeah. And then it's like, you know, then I try and figure somebody else out. Um, or it's like, I mean, the same thing with Jen Todd. Like, and usually you know, there's, there's guys that I know, people that I work with that, um, it's not that I know their taste so well, but it's like, I know, like, it's like, you talk to them enough, you kind of get what people are looking for. So there's like a certain type of thing that I'll always bring to Jen first, or, you know, Andrew Lauren has been really good to me. Like I always bring him and DJ Guggenheim stuff first. Like, uh, Jeff Rubinoff, like, you know, those guys, like at Studio Eight, have been very good to me. I'll bring them stuff. If I think it's like you know what they're doing and what they want to do, but for director, like like Ben, I think is just he's I, I love working for the guy. But there's other guys like Low. I really like David Lowry. I think what he's done is, I like, think his work is just fucking awesome. Yeah. Obviously Scorsese, but yeah. I mean, I think Scorsese just does whatever he wants now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <It's> yeah, not- <laughs> pretty much.
0: But like all, oh, I mean, it's the same guys like Fincher, Bennett Miller, like those guys. Yeah. But-
1: People that are paying attention to the details because cause you, yeah, you do have detail. I mean, that's what was remarked about in, in the show is just like the, the level, the level of detail, the level of, of specificity. Um, going to give you three questions and I'm going to let you go. Okay. You kind of answered this one already before. Um, it sounded like it was one of your motivations, but complete this sentence. The word no actually means what? Fuck you. <laughs> no. um,
0: actually, I don't think like. Man, I
1: really shouldn't have said that one. Um, no, 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 no. You were saying when people doubt you, you. Oh, it makes when people you... doubt
0: me. Yeah, when people doubt me, it's like. Like I said, it's like a bad American cliche. It's like oh, like, like there's a joke on it about the Simpsons. It's just like, you know, what I know you can do is it. just like because I heard some guy say you couldn't. You yeah. It's just yeah, yeah. That's how I am. Spite, so it's, almost like, it's almost like
1: an invitation.
0: Yeah, I run on spite. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's
1: really what it is. Uh, and then the next one is what what is your, if you have one, do you have a go to mantra when everything goes to shit? Like, do you have anything that gets you through?
0: Uh yeah, there's a couple of them. Um the one I put it in the show, the one that I usually use a lot. It was a. it was a line by William Kennedy. It's what's inscribed... I don't know if we we ever show it, but it's what's inscribed on Jackie, Jackie Roy's flask, which is the uh, it's Arnold Rothstein's prayer. And it's, God, keep me alive and smart and I'll figure out the rest on my own. I think that's usually what I'm, like, <laughs> I'm trying to say to myself. But I forget which William Kennedy book that was in, but
1: yeah. That's great. Um, and then the last one is, if you could give your younger self advice what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Hmm.
0: That's a good one. That's a solid question. Thank you. Um, I think I'd probably go to like, there's like a time, a couple years, probably like middle school. I think I've like blacked out trying not (laughs) to remember. I'd probably go to and be like, you're gonna. I just go to that game and be like, it's like yeah, it's really weird. It's like a lot of my life, I've been fucking terrified and anxious, and it's usually worked out. You know what I mean? It's like it hasn't. I mean, it's not like I haven't. I Man, I have like Hollywood horror stories I could tell you like all night. Like I've threatened to blow up producers' cars. I've threatened. To, you know, to, it's it's been rough. It's I've had you know every job I've ever worked on have had to do work for free. You just get fucked. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do a little bit of the fucking back. But, like, you know, that's what I would say, like, to that kid. It'd just be like, like, believe it or not, it's going to work out kind of the way you think it is. Yeah. It's like, he's going to be... Because, like, back then, like, I just wanted to... Like, I spent my whole life trying to be Han Solo. Yeah. And I'd be like, it's not going to be too far off. Like, just hold on
1: yeah 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 a lot of people a lot of people will say that and the you know, the the problem with that question is that kid would never listen to you anyway <laughs> you know what i mean like if you gave that kid advice he he's going to be like He's not gonna that that middle aged you yeah. is probably not gonna listen to you. And that's why <laughs> you know, that's why you have to go back and give the advice and it's just a bad yeah. loop that'll never end.
0: I think there's you probably know? a way like I kinda knew it'd just be like,
1: hey shithead. <laughs> You'll get him back. Push him up against the wall and right. tell him to relax. You're gonna, gonna get him, don't worry. <laughs> um well, Chuck McLean, thank you, man. Oh this thank is, you. This it's is such an honor to have you um here. And, uh, I mean, I, I kind of do feel like this, this could just be it. And now this may be like an epilogue or maybe it'll just be for my own. Like what's one of the horror stories just, it, it, just cause we're 10,000 no's and I, it may not include it in the, I don't know if it'll be in the interview, um, but like, just like the work, like, was there any ever a point when you thought you were going to quit or oh, like, yeah. that, like that? Like at
0: least, um, I, like my manager doesn't even take me seriously now, and I'm like, I'm just gonna fucking quit and like go to medical school or be like a like an ambulance chaser, lawyer. Like, just I mean, there's been a few times. I mean, that the the worst one was there was there was I'll tell you one good one and one bad one. The bad one, they both worked out, but it was for different reasons. One bad one was a, a producer. And it was a Big producer told me, uh, threatened me and said, if I didn't do, I'd already been working for free. They'd already run out of the money they were supposed to pay me. And they were going to, they asked me to do more work. And I was like, dude, you got to pay me. Like, I can't keep doing this. And he was like, if you don't do this work, I'll ruin your career. Like, you'll never work again. And so I this was like, this was all coming through people. And so I was like, go back to him tell him the next time he starts this guy, it'll be the last time he starts this guy. (laughs) And they were like, what is that? So the message came back. Was that supposed to mean? I'm like, it means I'm going to put a bomb in your car and you're going to fucking die. Like, you're going to take the food out of my mouth. Like I'll fucking kill you. That'll be, that's just it. I'm like, what what else do I have to do? Well, what ended up happening was they, um,
1: they filed a restraining order.
0: <laughs> no, what ended up happening was it was uh, I, like it became a thing where he like no one under, no one could really tell if like he'd fired me or if I quit after that. And so what ended up happening was like the studio called like a month later and asked where the script was. And I was like, well, I got fired by the producer four months ago and they or a month ago. And they were like, man, he doesn't have the power to do that. And so the funny thing about it is that that producer and I, once we started working together again, we hired this director, and that director was such a pain in the ass that me and that producer ended up becoming really good friends, <laughs> like through mutual hatred. Like, director, really good story, horror story was, um, I took this indie gig once for an independent financier, and um, it's for an actor friend of mine. Begged me to do the job. I didn't really want to do the job, but I I kind of needed the money. So when I took the job, I was like, do you want me to, to work from the treatment you already have or do you want me to just do what I do and go fucking crazy? And he was like, go fucking crazy, man. Do what you got to do. So I write this script. The actor loves it. He hands it to the financier. And the financier like, hadn't worked in movies before. He like, made money doing something else and he just like wanted to hang out with famous people. And... At this point, I'd been working for a few years, and I'd I'd worked for Brad Pitt. I'd worked for Antoine Fuqua. I'd worked for, you know, I mean, like, I'd worked for, like, some big names. I was still really young, but I'd I'd had really big projects with big companies. And it's not that I was, like, full of myself, but I kind of, like, expected not to be talked to like a kid. Yeah. And this guy came back, and his notes were—it was the most insulting response I've ever gotten to a script. And— uh, I bit my tongue and was like, All right, I'm doing this for like a friend. So I like, I kept my mouth shut and I, I wrote them a 10 page document. Like, this is how I'll fix the script. I was like, this is what, if they're digesting your notes, this is what I think you're talking about. This is how I'll fix the script. And they just wrote back, no. Like not, we like this, don't like this. It was just like, no, try again. And so... I got in an argument with the actor, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, what they said to me was that they just wanted a much more intelligent script. And I was like, oh, I'm dumb? Okay. (laughs) So what I did was uh, I charged the guy's company for completion of the draft. So the way a writer's contract works is, like, you get hired to start, and then you get another check when you finish a draft. But that doesn't mean, like, you write it and turn it in. The draft is... Like what they t- like, it, the draft is completed when the producer says it's completed, so they can tell you know it's a it's built in. It's called the producer's pass. Custom is usually like they give you one set of notes, you do that set of notes, then they pay you. Right, right? it's like it's bullshit. It's free work, but it's custom, right? So I charge the guy for delivery of the draft. His company paid me out as soon as the check cleared my bank account. I quit, and the guy was like. You know, that was basically 60% of my contract for one one draft. And the guy lost his fucking mind because he figured that I robbed him of his producer's pass. And he was like, you know, like again, was like, you ruin, like, I'll ruin your career. And I was like, man, this is why... I was like, we have a writer's union. Like, what are you going to ruin my career? Like, you're going to take me to court to say that you paid me what you contractually were obligated to pay me? Like... Yeah, I'm like well, so. We like you're gonna take me to court. However long this lasts, then you'll pay me triple damages in civil court. And then the guy physically threatened me, and I said, uh, "Again, this is like through intermediaries." I was. I gave them my address and said, uh, "I've wanted to kill
1: someone my whole life.
0: <laughs> Come find me." And then it didn't work. So it was like... But the, like and they,
1: what happened to that script? It just died there. Just they died they own and it, and, it and that's it?
0: Yeah, they own it, but they hate it. So that's fuck yeah. them. Like, yeah. But it's just like one of those things where, I mean, for me, like, I mean, usually like... go. I, there's been a lot of people I've worked with that like the relationship has been very successful. And it's usually just like a, a matter of like mutual respect. Like I'm not going to waste somebody else's time, you know? Yeah. So it's when... Usually, where it goes wrong, when someone talks to me like I'm an idiot, like you know, it doesn't happen so much, I and mean, it it really hasn't happened often. I mean, usually, what ends up happening now is you know, like I said, like sometimes you get in a situation, and this happened to me a million times, where it's you get hired by different people, then who are then then you get
1: ha- handed off to someone else,
0: and so well, what happened before, like when I was a rookie, is people would be like, well, we just want it to be a little bit more like um like a Michael Bay movie. And you'd be like, well, I didn't sign up to write that. And they're like, well, this is how it gets made. You know, and it's just like, in, you, there's a, you're a rookie, you're trying to please them because you're new and no one knows you and you have no reputation. Now I'm like, I'll just go to them and be like, be like guys, it's it. a bait and switch. I'm like, I signed up to do this. Like, you want to talk about that? Then yeah, if not, like, and they're like, yeah, hey, right. And I'm just, you know, pay me out or whatever. But like, that's what it becomes. It's like, you know, I don't know. I've always run up against that because it was like up until this point, usually been like the youngest guy in the room and it's, you know, so it's this thing where like everyone, you know, it's great when someone is just shows you how to do it. Like, that's why Ben was so great. He was like, he's like, it's like, listen, kid. And he's like, this is, we're just gonna, we're going to go do this. Whereas like most people are like, let me tell you something. And it's just like, they like try and cozy up to you and like act like the fucking uncle. And it's like, why are you talking to me like that, man? Like, we're both professionals. You're paying me, like
1: yeah. Let me go do my job. Yeah,
0: this is be, being professionals here. So it's like, you know, it's like it's there it can be those hustlers, but usually it's when someone is like, you know, approaches it like a business, like you know, then it's it's fine. I don't know. It's this very strange thing. I feel like no one in this industry has like a personal life, so it's like they're always trying to mix business with, and it always becomes messy. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like. I'd rather just have someone call me like a fucking piece of shit and scream at each other. And then it's like, you know, all right, we're going to do this or not. And it's like, all right, let's go do it. Like,
1: <laughs> instead yeah. of having
0: this like passive aggressive, like, you let me down or, right. like, I'd be really happy if you did this. You know, and it's just like, no, like,
1: what are we talking about here? Yeah. Not- well, I probably I'm,
0: just talked myself out of like every future job with that story.
1: <laughs> can, that's the beauty. We can always we can always decide to cut that. It's, we already kind of ended the conversation and that was like the little epilogue. So you decide you can later. You use the ones where I threaten to kill if people. If you guys are hearing this right now, that means that Chuck was okay with it. If not, then uh, <laughs> this is my own personal collection to my kids. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much, Thank man. you. Thank you. Okay. I know that was a long one, but come on. How good was it? Don't say anything less than excellent or Chuck will put a cowbomb under your hood. Okay, top three takeaways. Here we go. Number one, Chuck's anger and vigilance toward anyone who was getting in his way. It reminded me of the book I read this past year, The One Thing. Also, reminds me of all of my entrepreneur friends who talk about the importance of surrounding yourself with people who will support your desire to chase your dreams, not thwart it. You are the average of the five people closest to you. Number two. Using other people's doubt as fuel.
0: I was a BC student until someone told me I was dumb and I got really fucking pissed.
1: My actor buddy Chris and I, who are both mid-40s and fathers, have recently been trying to relinquish this us versus them mentality that we've held on to for over two decades. But I actually texted him recently that while I know others aren't out to get me, sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world to tell myself they are just to use it as fuel to fire me up, to put me into that scrappy beast mode so I can get aggressive. Chuck has this rage. And I mention it to all of you because I think in a lot of ways, society today tells us that there's no place for rage, and I think that's wrong. Rage, when intentionally channeled into art or a social or political movement, is a very effective tool. On the other hand, if you misuse your rage, as Chuck kind of alluded to doing prior to college— It can potentially destroy your life or the lives of the people around you. But if you're young and pissed off, don't ignore that. Don't squash it down. It's not going to go away. Pull it out, listen to it, and let it guide you to possibly change the world for the better in some way. Now, number three is if you're young for you or if you're a parent and have a kid that's a lunatic, it's for you. A lot of times, the kids that cause a lot of trouble are the ones who change the world the most because they have it in their DNA not to take things for truth without putting themselves on the line challenging it.
0: The, like we were the four kids that would be like puking in an alley in Boston and like running from the cops.
1: Again, the recurring 10,000 no's theme that applies here, I think is... Where you are now is not the end of your story. So don't give up on yourself even if you're in a terrible position right now. Things change, situations evolve, and strangers come out of the woodwork to help you as soon as you start helping yourself. All right. That's all I got. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Chuck, for your honesty, your wisdom, for sitting down with me, your entertainment. Go check out the links in the show notes. If you want more information about Chuck, please share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it and post it to your social media. If you dug it, if you If you can take a few minutes to leave an iTunes review, like Aunt Dolly, uh, I would personally appreciate that. And subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you like today's conversation with Chuck, check out the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Emmy award-winning actor Richard Schiff of The West Wing and The Good Doctor... Amazon Goliath's showrunner, Lawrence Trilling, producer Jen Todd, who ran Affleck and Damon's Pearl Street Films for five years and serves as an executive producer on City on a Hill or City on a Hill castmate. Mark O'Brien There are tons of others But start with those You can also scroll through 10,000nos.com To see which other episodes Might speak to you For announcements And promo videos Of who's next You can follow me On social media At Matty Dell On Instagram At Matthew Del Negro On Twitter Facebook And LinkedIn And you can email us at info at 10,000nose.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. And don't forget to order your 10,000 Nose hats and T-shirts at the website as well. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.